Let's turn in our Bibles to Matthew chapter 17 this morning. Matthew chapter 17, we're going to begin reading in verse 14 and through to the end of the chapter. Uh, as you find your way there, I'll give you a moment. Uh, I just want to commend to you uh, the growth groups that take place here each and every Sunday, and then again Thursday night at 6.30 in the YMC. If you talk to anybody in this room this morning who's involved in one of those growth groups, I think that they will attest to how life-transforming it has been for them to be a part of one of those growth groups. You know, God has so ordered His church uh, that we would bear with one another, that we would forgive one another, that we would confess our sins to one another, and a whole host of other one another's. And the way that we have determined it best for us to fulfill those one another's as a church is by means of growth groups. And so if you are not in a growth group, let me tell you, I think you're really missing out on an opportunity for growth uh, in Christ and in fellowship with other people. So I want to encourage you in that direction. If you're not involved in a growth group or you, you feel like this is a big place and you'd like it to be a little smaller, growth groups are going to be the mechanism by which you get plugged in. And so uh, Jeremy, Pastor Jeremy leads one. Uh, Our elders, Neil Smith and Gary Weimer, lead growth groups. I lead the Thursday night growth group. We would love to have you participate, and so we encourage you and and, uh, look forward to seeing you in one of those contexts very soon. Matthew chapter 17, beginning in verse 14. This is what God's Word says. And when they came to the crowd, a man came up to him and kneeling before him said, Lord, have mercy on my son, for he has seizures and he suffers terribly, for often he falls into the fire and often into the water. And I brought him to your disciples and they could not heal him. And Jesus answered, O faithless and twisted generation, how long am I to be with you? How long am I to bear with you? Bring him here to me. And Jesus rebuked the demon, and it came out of him, and the boy was healed instantly. Then the disciples came to Jesus privately and said, Why could we not cast it out? He said to them, Because of your little faith. For truly I say to you, if you have faith like a grain of mustard seed, you will say to this mountain, Move from here to there, and it will move, and nothing will be impossible for you. As they were gathering in Galilee, Jesus said to them, The Son of Man is about to be delivered into the hands of men, and they will kill him, and he will be raised on the third day. And they were greatly distressed. When they came to Capernaum, the collectors of the two drachma tax went up to Peter and said, Does your teacher not pay the tax? He said, Yes. And when he came into the house, Jesus spoke to him first, saying, What do you think, Simon? From whom do kings of the earth take toll or tax, from their sons or from others? And when he said from others, Jesus said to him, Then the sons are free. However, not to give offense to them, go to the sea and cast a hook and take the first fish that comes up. And when you open its mouth, you will find a shekel. Take that and give it to them for me and for yourself. This is God's word. Let's bow and pray together. Heavenly Father, we come before you with our Bibles open, asking what those Gentiles of old once asked, we wish to see Jesus. Father, we pray that as your word is unfolded, 
that the person of your son would be lifted up, and in being lifted up, that he would draw everyone to himself, that you would transform the lives of your people, making us more like you. We ask this all in Jesus' name. Amen. I have made a a pretty simple observation in life, and that is that generally speaking, people's entire behavior, indeed their entire demeanor, can often be transformed simply by the presence of another. And when I say that, I don't, I don't mean the sort of standard fare, you know, make sure that you're surrounded with good company and not bad company. What I mean is, is more along these lines. I've noticed that a child, typically afraid of the dark, suddenly becomes emboldened to walk down a long and dark hallway if mommy or daddy promises to go with her. I've noticed that a tired mother, nearly overwhelmed with the burden of her many duties, and feeling hopeless and alone, is overcome with joy when her husband surprises her in his return from active duty. I've noticed that a group of seemingly dejected young men, having given up all hope of winning a game, begin to play with confidence and swagger when the best player on the team comes back onto the court after sustaining what appeared to be a serious injury. Perhaps there's somebody in your life like that. Someone by merely being present can transform the way that you think, the way that you behave in a certain situation. And the reason for that, I would submit to you, is that you've studied them. You know who they are. And more importantly, you know who they are for you. So in the case of the scared little child, a mother or a father is a protector, a sense of security and support. For the overburdened mother, the presence of her husband is the return of companionship and love. And for those guys on the basketball court, the best player on the team represents their hope of playing well and winning. It's not only that you know who this person is, you know who who they are for you. Now I want to move from a more general observation to a more specific observation about the Gospels in the New Testament, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. This comes from noted New Testament scholar D.A. Carson. He reminded me this week very simply in his writing that the Gospels are about Jesus. That might seem simple enough, but it's so easily missed. Very often we think that the Gospels are somehow about us. The Gospels are about Jesus. He continues, more particularly, they are about Jesus' coming, his earthly ministry, all rushing towards the cross and resurrection. He concludes, in short, if we preach the Gospels faithfully, we will focus supremely on preaching Jesus Christ. It is always my intention to preach faithfully, and so my intention this morning is to focus supremely on Jesus Christ. I make no apologies for that. I'm going to preach Christ to you this morning. But I want you to understand that in all of our preaching of Christ from Matthew's Gospel, we are focusing not only on who Jesus is, but who Jesus is for you. Indeed, there is nothing more relevant and more practical in the life of non-believer and follower of Jesus alike than to focus on the person of Christ and who He is for you. This entire Gospel account of Jesus shows us that he is the king, the the king with all authority, we read in chapter 28. But 
Have you realized, I wonder, that He is the King for you? We have in the passage in front of us three seemingly disparate bits of Scripture. We have an account of an exorcism, a reminder of the Gospel, and then Peter goes fishing for his tax money. But in all three of these vignettes, we have a picture of who Jesus is. And again, I submit to you, not only who Jesus is, but who He is for you. Who is this Christ? I want to make our way through each of these three sections, focusing squarely on the person of Jesus. The first section of our text is found in verses 14 to 21. We might call this section, if you're keeping notes, of mustard seeds and mountains. Of mustard seeds and mountains. It's a fairly simple story on the face of it. Jesus and his disciples have just been on the Mount of Transfiguration. That is, Peter, James, and John were with Jesus on the Mount of Transfiguration. And as they come down the mountain, they encounter a crowd, a bit of a hullabaloo about the disciples, the rest of the disciples' inability to heal a young man who is suffering from seizures. The seizures were merely symptomatic. The root cause, of course, is demon possession. The disciples are unable to help the young man. Jesus arrives on the scene. He speaks a word of rebuke to the demon, and the demon is cast out. Subsequently, the disciples come and ask Jesus why they couldn't in fact, heal the young man. But I think if we begin at the beginning and focus in on the person of Christ, we'll see there's far more to this story than might initially meet the eye. We begin with the setting as the disciples are making their way down the mountain with Jesus. And this man approaches Christ desperately, passionately, He falls down before the Lord Jesus and cries out, Lord, have mercy on my son. For he has seizures and he suffers terribly. He often falls into the fire and often into the water. It's impossible to fault this father for wanting to move mountains himself to find healing for his son. Think of the agony it would be as a parent to watch your son suffer in this way. Not merely seizures, but seizures so severe that from time to time he falls into the fire, sustaining injuries and burns. On other occasions, he falls down and seizes, sending him into the water in danger of drowning. Here's a young man who suffers greatly and a father who is absolutely desperate for help. The problem is, of course, that Though he's come to the disciples of Jesus, he's found no help for his son. I brought him to your disciples, he says, and they could not heal him. I want us to focus in on the response of Jesus to this man. It's really quite strange in verse 17. Jesus, when encountered with this man in his plea for mercy, answers, O faithless and twisted generation, how long am I to be with you? How long am I to bear with you? Bring him here to me. Now, I want us all to get in sort of the way back machine. For some of us, it's way, way back. For others, it's just a little, little way back. I want you to think back to junior high. When you were in junior high, you probably studied literature and narrative, and you probably learned that there are three major types of conflict in any sort of plot. You have man or woman, of course, uh, versus 
nature. You have man or woman versus man. You have man or woman versus self. There are three kinds of conflict. Either the main character is battling another person, battling some sort of inner turmoil, or battling, battling something that's happening in nature. And I think it's easy to sort of read this account as though the conflict in the story is man, we'll call it God-man, versus nature, or we'll say supernature. Because after all, the conflict it would seem is this young man is suffering. But I want to ask you this question. Who is Jesus speaking to? When he cries out, oh, faithless and twisted generation, how long am I to be with you? Who is Jesus speaking to? It cannot be the man who's come for healing. Jesus never responds to someone's humble plea for mercy with a rebuke. Of course, it could be the crowds. After all, from time to time in the gospel, according to Matthew, Jesus has addressed this generation and found fault with it due to its lack of faith. But I think as we continue to read, we'll notice that Jesus' rebuke, though, addressed to the crowd generally, is aimed at the disciples specifically. After all, it's the disciples who Jesus calls out for having little faith. They are part and parcel of this faithless and twisted generation, at least at this point in our story. Jesus calls the young boy to himself, and with a word, instantly the boy is healed. But the tension isn't resolved. Because in verse 19, the disciples come to Jesus privately and they they seek an explanation. Why could we not cast it out? What went wrong? I mean, clearly this is not the way things are supposed to work. If you just turn back briefly to chapter 10, in verse 1, as Jesus addresses the original 12, those disciples who would later become apostles minus Judas, we read in chapter 10, verse 1, that he called, him, called to him his 12 disciples and gave them authority over unclean spirits to cast them out and to heal every disease and every affliction. Jesus has taken his authority over the supernatural realm and he has given it to the apostles. In verse 8 of chapter 10, he commands them, heal the sick, raise the dead, cleanse lepers, cast out demons. You receive without paying, give without pay. Here is a group of men who have a call, a commission, a command. Cast out demons. And yet here we are, right after the Mount of Transfiguration, shortly after the great confession of Peter, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God, and yet these men can't do what they have been called, commissioned, and commanded to do. No surprise then that Jesus would say, oh, faithless and twisted generation. Why, they ask. Why could we not cast it out? What has gone wrong? And Jesus gives them this reply, because of your little faith. But here is what is so incredibly delicious about this passage. I want you to notice that the the antidote, the, the, the opposite of their little faith is a little faith. Look at the text in front of you. The antidote to a little faith is a little faith. Why could we not cast it out because of your little faith? For truly I say to you, if you have faith like a grain of mustard seed, 
Now, this is not the first time Jesus has used the imagery of mustard seeds. Back in chapter 13, he tells this parable, verses 31 and 32. The kingdom of heaven, he says, is like a grain of mustard seed that a man took and sowed in his field. He explains it is the smallest of all seeds. Why could you not cast it out? Because of your little faith. What do you need? A little faith. Now I want to pause for a moment and just think conceptually about the nature of faith. We talk about faith all the time. I mean, I, I, would, I would wager that if you walked into just about any department store this afternoon, you walked into the home decor section, you would find framed image after framed image extolling the virtues of faith. Sometimes in that trifecta of faith, hope, and love, maybe a framed image encouraging you to have the faith, keep the faith. You stick a microphone in the face of any 20-something-year-old after they've just won a big game and ask, how in the world did you pull off that victory? And nine times out of ten, you're going to hear the young man say, well, you know, we just believed. We had faith. We just kept believing. We commend one another as men and women of faith. But I think in all of those usages of the word, we frame faith as something impotent, almost meaningless. I've come to realize that very often we're talking about nothing other than faith in faith. When are we going to ask faith in what? More relevant to the text, faith in who? Jesus is not coming to the disciples with an abstract concept of faith. When he says you need a little faith to, to be the antidote to your little faith, he's not talking about faith in terms of volume. He's talking about the object of faith. Is if you have faith like a mustard seed in who I am, Nothing will be impossible for you. Notice in the text that what is impossible for the disciples is instant for Jesus. He rebukes the demon and it's gone. The very thing he had commanded the disciples to do. Faith in whom? You know, it doesn't quite matter how much faith I have in my ability to fly unless I'm in an airplane being piloted by a qualified pilot, preferably with a license. The object of our faith matters. Here's a call, a commission, a command to heal the sick, and the disciples cannot do it because they've lost sight of Jesus. Could it be that all this talk about the cross and resurrection has led them to believe we're just going to take an L and for the foreseeable future, you know, it's just over? He's not as powerful as we thought he once was. He's not as authoritative as we thought he once was. Jesus says, if you have faith, nothing, now understand in context, nothing that I've called, commissioned, and commanded you to do will be impossible for you. You'll be able to move mountains. In modern parlance, it would be something along these lines. If you have faith like a grain of mustard seed, you will say to this pig, fly from here to there. Anything I command and call and commission you to do, you will be able to do if you do it by faith. 
Now understand that soon this commission to cast out demons, etc., will fade into the distance as the new call and the new commission of chapter 28 rings out, go therefore and make disciples, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to obey, obey all that I've commanded you. And behold, I am with you. I'm with you. Even until the end of the age, that extends beyond the twelve into us. And I wonder if maybe, just maybe, our failures to do what Jesus has called and commissioned and commanded us to do finds at the very roots of it all a lack of faith in who Jesus is. We pursue the Great Commission in our own strength, by our own means, our own, our own program, rather than a reliance on His Holy Spirit and His promise to be with us always. We come up with gimmicks and mechanisms to plead people to believe in Jesus without realizing that no matter where I am, Jesus is here and He owns the room. It belongs to Him. Or perhaps we just sit on our hands. Nothing's going to happen anyways. Why couldn't we do what you called us to do, Jesus? Because of your little faith. And what you need when confronted with little faith is a little faith. Not in self, but in Jesus. St. Augustine was famous for having said, give what you command and command what you will. God, you can tell me to do anything. Just You better be sure that you, you enable me to do it. I think Jesus would have agreed with that in this context. Go heal the sick. Eyes on me. Believe in me. Of mustard seeds and mountains. Who is this Jesus? Jesus is the King who calls and empowers us to accomplish His purposes by faith. I get you on the playing field with a little bit of swagger, won't it? Jesus calls and empowers us to accomplish His purposes by faith. From of mustard seeds and mountains we move to of death and resurrection, verses 22 to 23. We have a different setting as they were gathering in Galilee. And Jesus said to them as He began to plainly say to them in chapter 16, rather, the Son of Man is about to be delivered into the hands of men. They will kill Him and He will be raised on the third day. And they were greatly distressed. This is the gospel. It doesn't get much clearer than that, that this is the gospel. Jesus is delivered over into the hands of men. They kill him, and he's raised on the third day. He does this specifically in the context of Matthew's gospel to save his people from their sins. My non Christian friend, what we would want you to know more than anything else this morning is that Jesus is the only one who can save you from your sins. That sin is so vile and so despicable to God that He must judge it. He must, there, there must be blood shed to pay for sin, and Jesus has done that. He's delivered into the hands of men. Now, we very often now in our society and in our culture purchase things online. 
And you know at the end of your transaction as you're getting ready to check out, you have those shipping options, right? Who's going to deliver the package? Your USPS for $5, UPS for $14.95, and price goes up and up as you go. Sometimes the things I purchase, the shipping costs more than the item. Have you ever had that? It's ridiculous. Who's going to deliver this package? The question that we want to ask here in this portion of the text is Jesus is proclaiming the facts of the gospel to his disciples is who is going to deliver him up? The Son of Man will be delivered into the hands of men. I suppose there are two ways of looking at that. As the story unfolds, it will become clear as day that Judas, one of his closest disciples, betrays him and delivers him into the hands of men, sinful men. But is it not the warp and woof of the entirety of the Scriptures that ultimately, behind and beneath all of it, the delivering up of God the Son takes place as God the Father puts Him forward as a payment for your sin and for mine. Let us understand that our sins demand justice. We are condemned in our sin, and yet God the Father has loved us so much in God the Son that He willingly hands over His Son, delivers His Son over to be killed. Not because sin is a light thing, but because it's a major thing. And because this is the only way for sinful men and women to be made right with a holy and righteous God. Killed and raised on the third day, not for anything that He had done, but for our sins. Who is Jesus? I mean, this is the most important question that a human person could ever ask. Who is Jesus in light of the gospel? Jesus is the King who is delivered, killed, and raised for us and for our salvation. What a King. Christian friends, never tire of hearing this gospel. Never tire of hearing the very sermon that in the final days of His life, Jesus prioritized more than anything else over and over and over again, plainly telling His disciples what He had come to do. He came to live, die, and rise again. He's the King who dies and is raised for us and our salvation. Mustard seeds and mountains, death and resurrection, finally taxes and sons. In verse 24, we have yet another shift in the narrative. They're now in Capernaum within Galilee. And Jesus' disciple Peter is confronted on this issue of tax. There's a a woman who has been writing for the last decade or so. She was a, a women's literature professor, militantly lesbian, Converted miraculously, powerfully by the gospel, having been ministered to by a pastor and his wife, patiently, graciously. Her name is Rosaria Butterfield. 
She wrote a book recently entitled, The Gospel Comes with a House Key. Some of our staff have read it. We would encourage you to read it as well. I'm tempted to take a page out of Rosaria's book and refer to this section as the gospel comes with a tax exemption. Praise God. If I didn't have your attention before, I do now. The gospel comes with a tax exemption. See, Peter is confronted here by this tax collector. Maybe that's why Matthew's the only gospel writer who includes it. He himself had been a tax collector. But the collector of this two drachma tax comes to Peter and asks, does your teacher not pay the tax? Now, we've got to just sort of place everything in context so that we understand it correctly. When I say that the gospel comes with a tax exemption, you're not going to be able to, to file that on your 1099. Understand the context here. Exodus chapter 30, as God is speaking to his, his people through Moses, he says, when you take the census of the people of Israel, then each shall give a ransom for his life to the Lord when you number them, that there may be no plague among them when you number them. Each one is numbered in the census shall give this half a shekel, according to the shekel of the sanctuary. It's a two drachma equivalent. Half a shekel as an offering to the Lord. Everyone who is numbered in the census from 20 years old and upward shall give the Lord's offering. The rich shall not give more, the poor shall not give less than the half shekel. You shall take the atonement money from the people of Israel and shall give it for the service of the tent of meeting, that's key, that it may bring the people of Israel to remembrance before the Lord so as to make atonement for your lives. Here is a tax that is levied upon the people of Israel to maintain the, the tabernacle. It's transferred here in Jesus' day, no longer to the tabernacle, but to the temple. Now understand how significant this is to religious life in Israel. If there is no temple, then there is no priesthood. If there is no priesthood, there are no sacrifices. If there are no sacrifices, there is no forgiveness of sin. Temple tax was a, a tidy bit important. Does your teacher not pay the tax? Peter says, yes. And when he came into the house, Jesus spoke to him first saying, Peter, what do you think? From whom do kings of the earth take toll or tax? From their sons or from others? Royalty in the United Kingdom. Who are they taxing? Are they taxing their children? Or are they taxing just you know, run-of-the-mill members of the kingdom. Who gets taxed? The answer is clear. Not from their sons, from others. And when he said from others, Jesus said to him, then the sons are free. And we're going to pause there for a moment. Because Jesus continues on by instructing Peter to go fishing. However, not to give offense to them, he says, go to the sea and cast a hook and take the first fish that comes up and when you open its mouth, you will find a shekel. Peter has a whole host of very, very interesting fishing stories throughout the Gospels. I was thinking this week that you could do an entire sermon series on great fishing stories in the Bible. You've got Jonah, you've got Peter multiple times. I have observed that there are as many fishing stories as there are fishermen. My dad was a fisherman. He had plenty of stories about fishing in Manitoba. I have one fishing story, and that is that my dad took me to a very well-stocked pond at Firestone Park in Akron. I caught a bluegill, took it off the line, was super grossed out, and never went back. 
super outdoorsy. But here is a, a tremendous fishing story. Jesus not only knows that Peter is going to catch a fish, he knows that the first fish that he catches is going to have enough money to pay for both Jesus and for Peter. And Peter is to take that and give it to the collectors as payment for both himself and Peter. Jesus pays the tax, and of course he would. Jesus is the perfectly righteous one. There isn't a commandment in the Scriptures that Jesus failed to obey. Of course he would pay the tax. It's quite like Jesus that he would do it in this miraculous way. I don't have any trouble with that. He rose from the dead. He can predict anything he wants about fish. But I want you to see here that in this whole explanation that that Jesus gives to Peter and all of the talk about who is taxed, that Jesus is actually teaching about himself. Who gets taxed, Peter? We're going to pay the tax. Don't worry about that. But who gets taxed in the kingdom? The sons are others. Others, well, then the sons are free. And don't you know that that's my father's house? I'm the son of God. I'm the unique son of God. And don't you know, Peter, as Jesus casts a sideways glance at the temple, there's going to be a day when neither of us have to pay that stinking tax because I'm about to upend the entire business. You continue to read in Matthew's account in chapter 21, Jesus himself goes into the temple. He curses it. He says, this thing's fruitless. He condemns a fig tree as a word picture for the temple. This thing's fruitless. It's, it's useless. We're, we're shutting it down. Later in chapter 27, as he is dying upon the cross, there's this beautiful account Chapter 27, verse 51, Behold, the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. The sacrifice of Jesus rendered any subsequent sacrifice completely unnecessary. And Jesus is looking forward, even as He pays the tax now, He's looking forward to the then when there will no longer need to be a tax. There will be no need for a priesthood because there is no need for a sacrifice because forgiveness of sins has been purchased by His blood. So that all who are in Christ, this is the significance, focus your attention on Jesus. It is the most practical thing you'll do in your life because as Jesus is the beloved Son of God in whom He is well pleased, so too if I am in Him, am a son or a daughter by faith. No sacrifice necessary. How does Paul put it? as he reflects back on the cross in Galatians chapter 4. In Galatians chapter 4, Paul writes this, I mean that the heir, as long as he is a child, is no different from a slave, though he is the owner of everything. But he is under guardians and managers until the date set by his father. In the same way, we also, when we were children, were enslaved to the elementary principles of the world. But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth His Son, born of a woman, born under the law, under the requirement to pay temple tax, to redeem those who were under the law, so that we might receive adoption as sons. 
Loved ones, get this in your heart. God sent forth His Son so that you might by faith be a son. The, the, the charge, or I'm sorry, the, the verdict that is read upon the believer in Jesus is not simply not guilty. It is not simply righteous. It is, in fact, adopted son or daughter. There is no longer a need to slavishly attempt to earn God's favor. Jesus has already done it. No temple necessary. Do you see the significance? The gospel comes with a tax exemption. Because having given all for you, God requires nothing in return. Son or daughter of the living God by faith in Jesus Christ. So who is this Jesus? In this great account of going fishing for tax money, who is Jesus? Jesus is the King, the Son of God who makes us sons and daughters of God. Does that change the way you approach Him? The way that you pray to Him? The way that you might read His Word? Your family identity changes nearly everything about you. So how practical and relevant is this Christ? That in all of His kingly authority, He is the King for you. He calls, commissions, commands, empowers you. He dies and rises again for you. He does away with the entire sacrificial system and calls you a son or a daughter you. But you'll never get any of that unless you stare at Jesus. You will never get a lick of that if you don't stare at Jesus. In just a moment, we're going to see our our sister Becky Bowen stir the waters of baptism. And in so doing, she she isn't seeking to draw attention to herself. She's seeking to point to Jesus and say, you know, all those things that, that, that the Scriptures just proclaimed to us, I have found them to all be true in Christ. And so just as Jesus died and rose again, I want to symbolically enter this pool and die and rise again. He's given me this new life as a daughter of the living God. If you've never trusted in Jesus in this way, I want to encourage you to talk to somebody, grab somebody by the the arm of their sleeve before they walk out this morning. Say, how do I, I want in. Come talk to me. Talk to one of the pastors. The most practical thing you can do is understand who Jesus is for you. Lord Jesus, We come before you in awe of you. Who else is a king like this? Who else is a king who gives 
royal decrees and commandments and yet empowers his subjects to fulfill them. What other king willingly steps down from his throne to be delivered, killed, and raised? All to pay for crimes committed by his people against himself. What other king invites his subjects to enter into the royal family? That's why you are the King of kings and the Lord of lords. We pray that as we've beheld Christ in the Scriptures, that as we behold Christ in the image of baptism, that we would find our lives profoundly changed. For Jesus' sake, amen.